Well, you can grab a seat. And congratulations on almost being done, some of us. If you are a graduating senior, either this May, okay, so in a few weeks, if you're graduating in a few weeks, if you're graduating this summer, or if you're graduating in December, just raise your hand. I'm just curious. Am I on? Oh my goodness! Well, look at you. That is a hand of victory. Congratulations. Just further curiosity, how many of those were December grads? I feel like there's a new, okay, yeah, a lot more than I was expecting. More people graduate in December now than they used to, I think. I don't know. Or maybe that's just my theory that's based on nothing. Uh, But I'm so excited for you that are graduating. Oh my gosh, so pumped. Uh, Just so you know, we actually are trying to make, I talked about this a few weeks ago, we're trying to make a more concentrated effort to actually keep in touch with our people and remember like, hey, you went here. So because of that, we have this new thing that we are rolling out this semester uh, that we're, we're really with it and hip. We're using phones these days. And you can text this word, you text alumni to this number 95577. Uh, and then it just asks you, like, what's your name and what's your email address? And when that, you fill it all out. Basically, just so that in the future, if you're, you know, we know we can send you, like, we'll probably send a list of, like, hey, good churches that you should check out depending on where you're headed. Or, hey, like, we're going to have a tailgate this next fall at the football games for alumni if you want to come to that. Or, hey, we're going to, you know, someone else is moving to that same place where you are. Like, would you mind, like, hooking up with them, talking with them, you know, showing them the ropes of wherever you will, Idaho, you know, wherever you wind up, like that's, that's the goal, right? It's just make sure that we still have a sort of a touch point. So if you're a graduating senior, I would encourage you either write that number down and just log it away or do it right this second. That's okay. I'm just going to be telling a story about a football game. So you don't have to concentrate that hard, uh, but you can text alumni to that number nine, five, five, seven, seven. We'll just keep in touch with you. Even after you leave us, you're going away. That's okay. The world out there is all right, I guess. Uh, but we are so excited for you that are graduating. I'm so excited uh, that this semester is drawing to a close, uh, mainly because as the spring ends, the summer begins, which is magical. If you've ever been here for College Station summer, it's amazing because no one is here. And it's, um, it's Disneyland College Station, okay? So that's going to happen. I'm excited about that. Uh, but I'm also incredibly excited because the end of the spring means that we're only a few months away from the beginning of the fall, which means that we are going to get to experience the grand opening, well, half opening of Kyle Field this fall. It's going to happen. We're going to be able to sit down in our chair. Well, you'll have to stand on your chair, but I'll get to sit on my chair and laugh at you. And I will remember, though, my favorite thing about the fall is just thinking back to the days gone by, the past games where I was also standing, and there was a game in particular that was one of my favorite games I ever went to. It was my sophomore year of college. Absolutely one of my favorite games, and I can't remember who our opponent was. I can't even remember who won, but I remember this one girl, okay? Not Susan. Susan was there, and she was with me. We were dating. It was, you know, it's cool. It's not a romantic story, but Susan was with me, and we were with friends watching the football game, and as the game was going on and kind of proceeding, it was one of those days where the temperature was about 113 degrees outside. Uh, It's College Station, so I'm assuming the the humidity was about 200%, and as we were standing there, I was immediately thinking, I was like, man, people people are going to eat it. Like, this is it. Like, this is that game. Like, I was prepared. I knew it was coming. And sure enough, halfway through the second quarter, I look a few rows ahead of me, and I see a girl. Let's call her Stephanie, because that's a girl name. So Stephanie, I notice her because she starts to kind of wave, right? Like, not like a woo, but like a, 
Ugh. Right? And I start to see this. I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> here we go. And sure enough, I'm watching it. I'm noticing that she's kind of, you know, a little bit slower. I noticed that, like, her friends would, like, bump into her. And it would take her a second to, like, react. She'd be like, what? And then go back to it. I noticed when we were passing back the yells and stuff that she would always be, like, a couple behind. And people would be, like, going down. She's coming up. And then she'd be like, oh, and, like, try to go back to, be the hell out. Kyle Field, like what? She didn't know what was going on. Just kind of one hand on, and she was just slowly swaying. And I was like, "Man, this this is bad, right?" I just saw it. She's becoming more lethargic. Like they're trying to high five after touchdowns. She's just like, and I'm like, "Man, this is is gonna happen." So I nudged Susan. I'm like, "Susan, Susan, look!" And as soon as Susan looked, just I guess the the energy from her stare hit Stephanie, and she begins to fall. And as she's falling, everything just kind of goes into slow motion, right? Like the adrenaline, or maybe I was just dehydrated and everything was slow. And I'm just remembering like seeing her falling forward and thinking, I need to do something, right? Like I need to be a hero in this moment. And I did my best and I went, oh, right? Like that was, <laughs> oh, oh, right? I was very concerned on my face. So I feel like I did my part. And as she was falling, I was like, oh. And she landed on the guy in front of her, right? Because we're packed in. It's like second deck. Everyone's like, Burr. and so she falls on the guy in front of her. Crisis averted. Everyone's like, oh, whew. unfortunately, the guy in front of her had no idea what was going on, right? He's watching the football game. All of a sudden, something lands on kind of his shoulder, and he instinctively pulls back. And Stephanie, <laughs> boom, just nosedives into the bleacher, just straight down. Everyone, it's like, it's exact, that noise. Everyone around us, oh, oh, just concerned. It was okay. She was fine, right? She was fine. She got out. They're like, oh, and they gave her some water. And she was just a little, little bruised and a lot embarrassed, but she was fine. And in that moment, man, the truth is, I, I realized, gosh, how many times have I seen that happen, right, at the football game? Like, how many times do we see people just kind of take nosedives? Anytime there's a super hot game, that occurs. How many times have you seen one of your friends take a nosedive and crash after just an accumulation of bad decisions? How many times have you seen a friend just make one mistake after the other after the other, and you just watched it happen until they just nosedive and crash right in front of you? Her friend saw her getting lethargic. Her friend saw her wearing down. The bad guy wasn't the dude that jumped out of the way because he didn't know what was going on. The bad guy were her friends who were looking at her like, ah, she'd be meh, and were silent. When was the last time you were silent as you saw your friend blow off a class and then bomb that test? When was the last time you were silent when your friend was in that relationship that was so toxic and you let him just continue in it? until it just brought ruin and destruction into their life? When was the last time you were silent about your friend who'd been isolating himself, which then led to depression? When was the last time you were silent when you saw your friend abusing substances, abusing sexuality, lust, and you're silent day after day, mistake after mistake, until that person just crashes into addiction? Is that what our friendships should look like? Should that occur in a Christian's relationships? That we see the problem coming from a mile away and yet we stand back, say nothing, and watch them crash and burn. Is that what we do? 
Is that how we live? This whole semester we've been looking at the life of David. We've been trying to understand, man, what made David a man after God's own heart? We've been looking at his stories. We've been looking at his psalms. We've been looking at his journals, seeing the things that he wrote from his heart. We've been trying to understand, man, what made him into that man after God's own heart? What gave him that heart? Because the reality is I want that heart for me. I want that heart for you. I want us all to be able to walk out of these doors and call ourselves men and women after God's own heart. So what did David do? Right? How did he respond to all these different situations? How did he respond to sin? How did he respond to rejection? How did he respond to success? How did he respond to foolishness? How, what did he do in all these different circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in regularly? And as we've been studying David, learning from both his successes and his failures, I think we've been getting closer and closer to understanding the heart behind this man who was chasing after God in success and in failure. So this morning what I want us to do is we're going to take a slightly different angle. Similar to what we did a few months ago when we looked at the story of Abigail. We're going to look at the story between David and a guy named Nathan. And more so than looking at David's response and actions in that moment, we will be touching on it, but more so than David, what I want us to really do today is to focus in on what does Nathan do? How does Nathan respond to sin in David's life? How does Nathan respond when he sees a problem in David's life? Because the reality is we are moving into summer where it is so easy for so many of us to backslide into lifestyles or habits from our past. It's so easy for us to isolate ourselves from our normal fellowship and community. It's so easy for us to crash and burn. So my question for you is, are we going to let that happen this summer? Are we going to stand by and watch it? If we're even looking? Or will we learn from Nathan, who sees the problem in David's life, and he cares enough to confront David? Nathan, a man also following the Lord, cared enough about his brother David to step in and confront him with three crucial elements. He confronted him in the right time, in the right way, and with the right truth. We've touched on this earlier this semester, but David made a, this one huge mistake, right? Like he had all these sins and all these errors. He had this, especially in his life, there was just a sexual drive that he couldn't get a hold on to, right? He couldn't, he couldn't get it under control. And this sexual drive eventually led him to a moment where he sees a woman across the roofs of Jerusalem. She's bathing. He's like, man, I could use some of that. And so he sins for her, grabs her, brings her to his palace. He has sex with her, gets her pregnant, decides, wow, I don't want that to blow up. So I'm going to kill her husband to hide up my mistake. So David sleeps with Bathsheba, kills her husband Uriah. Now David has Bathsheba as his own wife. She was pregnant. She gives birth to the child. David committed these sins completely in secret, completely in private. Something that he thought was, you know, kind of taken care of. The reality is that what we're about to read in 2 Samuel chapter 12 is probably about a year after 
not only the sin, but probably about a year after the birth of his son. Right, a lot of early biblical scholars will say, yeah, I think it's about 12 months after the birth of his son is when first, or sorry, 2 Samuel 12, verse 1, rolls around. And what we see in that moment is Nathan, who was the prophet of God, who, and also the buddy of David, who was the king of Israel at that time. Nathan goes to David. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. I kind of gave it away before I even read it. The Lord sent Nathan to be with David. Now see, this is key. It's key that we understand that what's happening here is about a year afterwards. Because the reality is that a lot of us, man, our timetable, if I knew that David, if I was Nathan, right, and I knew David, and I knew what he had done, I'm Nathan, I'm talking to the Lord, the Lord's probably keying me in on stuff. I'm hearing words from around the palace, right? It's not like everyone was just completely in the dark. And I'm hearing these things. If in my mind, if I was going to confront David, I feel like I would do it maybe like right after the sin. Right? But he doesn't. He doesn't confront David right after the sin. He doesn't even confront David after Uriah dies. He doesn't even confront David right after Bathsheba finds out she's pregnant. He doesn't confront David right after David brings Bathsheba to be his wife. Doesn't confront David when the child is born. What's he waiting for? What's his timing mechanism? What's Nathan been doing all of this time? If if David is starting to sway and look, you know, dehydrated, headed for that bleacher, why isn't Nathan stepping in? It's because he was waiting for the Lord to send him. What we need to catch immediately about Nathan is that he wasn't just on his own timetable. He was following the Lord's timing. The key to Nathan's timing was that it was God's timing. What we see in Nathan is a willingness to trust the Lord. Trust that God doesn't always, doesn't only always do the right thing, but God always does the right thing at the right time. If we are confronting someone, our timing is crucial. I have a niece named Penelope who's almost three years old. And Penelope is awesome because right now she's getting potty trained. And part of being potty trained uh, means that you are having to learn a whole new system of life, right? You're understanding a whole new just environment and kind of how stimuli work in your body and outside of your body. Like you're just figuring a lot of stuff out, okay? It's very hard. And so Penelope was struggling a little bit, like having to figure out, man, like I don't know how, how to wrap my mind around this whole potty thing. And so her parents decided to help her by stepping in and asking her, like, hey, do you need to go potty, right? Like, I know that's easy for you to forget about it, right? You're so involved in that uh, Elsa doll or whatever. Like, you know, know, I know that you can get distracted. So they ask her, hey, do you need to go potty? At which point she could either say, "Uh uh-huh or no, right? Very easy. But the problem that they ran into is they realized they couldn't just ask Penelope that constantly, because it would confuse her, right? And she would not really know. And she would give them false positives and false negatives. And it was a very bad scientific, not the scientific method at all. Right? Like she was in that moment, like they would ask her, do you know a pie? And she'd be like, uh, I, I don't know. Like she didn't know. Like she was just, uh, uh. and so they learned. They're like, okay, like we can't ask her constantly. That causes a lot of confusion. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to read our daughter. Right? We're just going to pay attention to the signs because the reality is that Penelope is like two and a half, you know, almost three. And so she, is, she wears all of her emotions on her sleeve. Like she's an open book. And so anytime she needs to go potty, she starts the dance, right? 
the dance that we know and love and probably still partake in every time, time, right? Where she'll be playing or something in the kitchen or they're like getting ready for the food and, and Penelope's just kind of like, you know, like kind of like, like just kind of getting down, you know, just kind of moving it. And they're like, hey, and then they see that and they're like, hey, hey, Penelope, do you need to go potty? Right, and in that moment, it almost doesn't even matter what she says. Like, she'd be like, no, and they're already picking her up and, like, taking her and plopping her down. Because, like, no, like, I know. Like, I can see it in you, right? They realize that, hey, the timing of this question is so crucial, right? We need to make sure that she's ready. We need to make sure that we're in the right environment. She would get embarrassed if, like, we were all hanging out as a group with her and her parents and me and my wife. And so we would be, like, hanging out, and they'd be like, you need to go potty? And she'd even be doing the dance. She'd be like, no, no. Because she thought there was like shame, great shame in using the bathroom. I don't know why. But so they learn, man, there's just a time we need to pull her aside. Be like, hey, do you need to go potty? Like, yes. Yes. And so they would take her, right? Like every single time. They realize, wow, the timing is so crucial in this moment. The reality is that, man, when we are confronting my brother, I'm confronting my sister in Christ. My timing is more just as important as my wording. My timing is huge. The time, the place the environment. All of those elements are so crucial. And within all of it, I need to make sure my timing is aligning with the Lord's. I need to rely on God's timing. I need to be in prayer. The most important conversation is my one with God, not with my brother, not with my sister, but with the Lord. Figuring out, man, when, when's the moment? Trusting that God would open a window, open a door. But we don't only see this amazing timing in Nathan's confrontation. We also see this incredible just way that he presents it. We look at verse 1 and keep going to, all the way to 7. It says that the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan came to David and said to him, Hey, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. So Nathan kicks off his time with David by telling him a story, right? I got a little story for you, Dave. And he starts talking about this guy, these two men that live in the city, right? So basically putting it like, hey, right here in Jerusalem, there's this guy and this other guy. And one of them's got all these lambs. The other one's just got this one little lamb. You lamb. It's a female lamb. He says, man, she's, he's just got one lamb. So already David's like, oh, man, yeah, I was a shepherd. Like, I know lambs. Like, those are cool, right? He's like, he's already kind of getting drawn in. Right, Nathan's already kind of pulling him. He's like, hey, just let me tell you about these guys. In fact, that poor man, he brought up that ewe lamb. It grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel, drink from his cup, lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So in other words, they have a very strange relationship. <laughs> but it's sweet, right? Like this, you see like, oh, like he's got this lamb. He lets it drink from his cup. It's weird. Maybe do that with your dog. If so, you're in sin. You need to stop, right? That's, just kidding. That's not the application. But he sees this you lamb, and he's like, oh. And David, man, he's feeling it. He's like, oh, yes. I love lamb. What happens? I hope they grow up and get married, I guess. I don't know. But then there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. So this rich man took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man who had come to him. All of a sudden, this ewe lamb who's like a daughter to the poor guy has been killed and served as a dish 
for a traveler. At this point, David's just getting worked up, right? And Nathan sees it. That's why he says, hey, David. Or he sees David's anger, right? He sees his anger is kindled against this man, right? This story. Nathan sees it. And so he says to Nathan, David says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan opens up this moment. He, st- he pauses the story to allow David to interact. Right? He has this Blue's Clues style moment. <laughs> what would you do with the rich man? He's back there, right? Like that's what Nathan does. He's got this pause. And David's like, there, kill him, right? He's so mad. They like, want to kill this guy. He's going to give him four more letters. Because David's thinking, man, this is, yeah, I mean, Nathan's presenting it to me as a story, but I know that this must be something that's happening in Jerusalem. So he's saying, man, we need to move into this moment. We need to make amends. We need to bring justice. And Nathan sets David up. He's drawing him in. He's breaking down David's defenses. David is involved. He's grabbed a hold of this story. It means something to him. And right in that moment, as David's lifted right up there, Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Right in that moment, when David set up, Nathan brings the hammer and just pounds him. Because Nathan knew that he wasn't supposed to soften the blow. Right? Many times when we feel like we see someone in the wrong or in sin, we think, oh, I need to just say it really gently. Like, I need to just soften the blow. Nathan doesn't do that. Instead, Nathan has so much compassion, so much care for David, knows David so well, that he doesn't have to pull back the blow. Instead, he softens the man. He softens David's heart. He softens the one who's in sin. And as soon as he sees David in that moment where he's tender and open and listening, he brings the full might of his confrontation. He brings it. Because he's not only compassionate in, his, in this moment, Nathan is confident. Right, Because he's coming at the right time. He's coming based on the Lord sending him. And so he walks in that moment. He says, David, I'm not going to hold back. Right? I'm not going to soften my blow. I'm going to soften you up, man. I'm going to get you ready. And then I'm going to bring the truth. David, I'm bringing the truth straight to your heart. David, you are that man. Nathan put time and care and attention into his words because he knew that wording is so crucial. It's so crucial that when I'm trying to confront my brother or sister in Christ, my wording needs to be compassionate. And it needs to be confident. And as I have that right time, and maybe I bring that right wording, I need to make sure I'm also bringing the right truth, the whole truth. What we see Nathan do in verse 9 is he tells him, man, why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. David, you've struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. In that moment, 
Nathan tells David the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. In that moment, he comes to David and he lays out exactly what happened. He doesn't bring hearsay. He doesn't bring rumors, right? Because in that moment, I'm sure there were lots of people talking around the castle, talking around the palace. Like, oh man, see that Bathsheba? More like Bathsheba, right? Because she was taking a bath, right? Like they have all these like things. Right, they're talking, they're like, oh, did you see, what happened with that? Like, oh, her husband just died, really? oh. Right, you know, you know there were rumors, you know there were people talking, you know there were so many sides to that story, you know there were so many theories floating around, all these conspiracy theories about, well, I think, Dave, what, what if the dad is actually Ezekiel? I don't know, that'd be weird. He doesn't exist yet, right? But they have these moments where they're like, ah, oh. they're fluctuating and they're talking and they're getting all this stuff, getting riled up. And Nathan doesn't bother with that. Nathan doesn't walk into David and say, man, like, I don't know really what's going on. Could you fill me in before we really have this talk? Right? He doesn't go in seeking information out of David. He doesn't go in like, well, people are saying blah, 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 blah. Right? He doesn't go in with that side stuff. Nathan does his job. He does the good work, the due diligence of finding out what exactly happened. We don't know how exactly Nathan found that out, whether it was the Lord just directly telling him or if Nathan was having to have some very cautious conversations, figuring out, man, like, what, what's going on? He was good friends with David, so my guess would be he probably just observed most of it on his own. He didn't go off of what so-and-so said or what Jimmy the cook thought happened, right? He says, no, like, I, I saw what happened. I've been talking to the Lord. Maybe I had a couple other conversations. David, I know what you've done. <laughs> you've killed Uriah, you've taken his wife. You sent him to his death at the hands of the Ammonites. David, here's the truth. This is the time and this is the way to give you the truth. Because when we're confronting our brother or our sister, man, our, the truth, the whole truth is so crucial. Just like the Yucatan Peninsula. Because you see... Way back in the day, back when the New World was still new, uh, there were explorers coming over to the States, where they were coming over to North America, Central America, South America. And as they're all landing here, a lot of them were Spanish. We had a lot of Spanish explorers. And one of them in particular came to the Yucatan Peninsula, and his story was recorded, so this might not be 100% accurate, but his story was recorded by Hernan Cortez. Hernan Cortez wrote a letter to the king back in Spain, telling him about what had been happening over in the New World, in the new settlements and the colonies, and they're trying to find gold and all this stuff. And so he writes this letter to the king, and he tells him, hey, we have these explorers show up on this one, you know, big old splotch of land. And as they're there, they found some natives. They found some other people that were already living there. Imagine that. And so the explorers walk up to the natives and say, hey, where are we? Right? But they were Spanish, so they say, donde esta? Thank you. Donde esta? But they're Spanish, so they have that lisp thing. Donde esta? Right? They say it. And all of the natives then hear that. They're like, oh. Huh? And they don't know what's going on, right? They don't speak Spanish, right? That doesn't, that doesn't work. It doesn't work that way, right? Like they haven't been speaking Spanish for years. And so these Mayans, they walk up to the explorers and say, what? Donde esta? And the, the local, the natives, they say, Yucatan. Which in the Yucatec Mayan language meant, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. Right? That's what they say. Donde está? 
Yucatan. Like, they, <laughs> no one knows what's going on. And so the Spanish explorers say, oh, Yucatan. Hey! Ole! Right? Like, they're excited. Pinata! Right? They get excited. And they want to say, hey, let's make this Yucatan. And they, you know, what's so crazy is that they eventually find out this is wrong. Right? Like, this guy writing the letter to the king, he's already figured out, yeah, this is, this is wrong. Like, this is clearly misunderstanding. But even then, the king's like, nah, it's Yucatan. That's fine. Whatever. Right? Like, they don't care. So to this day, to this day, we know what happened. And we always like, eh, Yucatan, whatever. Like, we just go with it. Because the reality is that sometimes, man, we don't care about the whole truth, right? We, sometimes we don't really care about what's actually true. We find a truth that resonates with us. We find something that we're like, yeah, that makes sense. And we just go with it. And Nathan doesn't do that. Nathan goes to David, not with the theory that made the most sense to Nathan. He doesn't go to David with this idea that he came up with on his own. Nathan goes to David with the truth, the real truth. If you are confronting someone in sin, you need to bring the truth. Anything less, and you're doing them and yourself a disservice. Anything less, and you will cause so much pain, so much heartbreak, because you didn't get the truth, because you come in with the wrong expectations, the wrong ideas. You bring the truth. That's what we're called to, to figure out, man, what's true in this moment? I'm grounded in the truth when I walk into that confrontation. And what's so beautiful is when I find that right timing and I get that right way and I bring in that real truth. I've now set myself up. I've set up the person I'm confronting to give just the perfect response. That's the goal is to set them up for success, to set them up for the right response, just like this guy. (laughs) Looks like something you used to suck on when you were little. Yeah, you should probably read it. Actually, no. (laughs) All right. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I told you. <laughs> I'm ten weeks. <laughs> I know. I know. What happened in that moment? His daughter comes to him, digs out the right time, apparently Easter-ish. Right? She comes to him in the right time. She decides, hey, I'm going to create this box that looks like an Easter gift. Right? Put on an old binky. I'm going to find the right way, and I'm going to tell my father the truth. I'm going to tell him exactly what's happening. I'm having a kid in November. And that response is beautiful. That response is right. It's the response that belongs in that moment. Nathan goes to David. He brings the right time. He brings the right way. He brings the real truth. And David responds by saying to Nathan, I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. In fact, David goes away from this moment and he writes Psalm 51 that we read at the very beginning. He wrote Psalm 51 immediately after his meeting with Nathan. And as when he read at the beginning, we see him start off talking about, Lord, this sin is so great. God, the sin is in front of me. It's in front of me every moment of every day. 
God's timing was so perfect because there's no way David walked into this meeting with a clean conscience. There's no way that David was living every life thinking he had really gotten away with it. There's no way that sin hadn't been eating at him and tearing him up every moment of every day. Every time he looked at the face of his son, he saw his sin. So he starts off Psalm 51 saying, God, I've sinned. It's in front of me. First thing he tells Nathan, I've sinned. But that's not the beauty of the response. What's beautiful is that David doesn't only admit his wrong, he then moves into desiring to seek restoration. He goes on in Psalm 51, he says, God, create me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. It says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. God, uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way. And sinners will return to you. What's beautiful in this response is that David admits his wrong, he desires to repent, to run the other way. He seeks restoration with the Lord. He seeks to be restored into that relationship. And he does it all with such incredible humility that he says, you know what? I'm going to walk away from this moment and I'm going to use myself as an example to tell other people about the dangers of sin. All because Nathan was willing to confront him at the right time, in the right way, the real truth. Nathan, David was set up to respond so beautifully because what really is amazing about David, we're going to hammer this again next week, what's incredible about him is his willingness to repent. It's not the fact that he was perfect. It's not the fact that he was slayed giants. It's not the fact that he waited for God for a really long time in the desert. What's amazing about David is his willingness to always run back to the Lord. Many times our sin, that secret sin that we just can't let go of, drives us further and further into ourselves, further and further into isolation, further and further away from the Lord. David ran to God, not from him. Because David realized that we have a God who loves us. That while we were in the midst of our sin and transgressions, that he sent his son to die for us. David realized that God had a redemption plan. He didn't know exactly what it was going to look like, but we now know that Jesus Christ was God who became man, who lived a perfect life, the life that we cannot live, to die the death that we deserve because of our sin. That if I only put my faith in him, if I just trust that Christ is my savior, I can have eternal life. I can be restored to the Lord. I can be adopted as his son or his daughter for all of eternity. David had just the briefest glimpse of that. So he ran to God. We have the whole picture. So why aren't we running Why aren't we finding our friends and confronting them? The goal isn't to go out from this and have our righteousness hammers, right? And walk out and be like, you're in sin and you're in sin. (laughs) Be holy, right? Like that's not the goal. 
The goal isn't to go out and just point out everybody's sin because it makes us feel better and because that's what God wants us to do. The goal is to go out and bring people back to the Lord, whether that's through evangelism to someone who doesn't know God at all, or maybe it's your friend who's in sin. You've seen it from a mile away. You've seen it all semester. You need to find that time. You need to find the words, and you need to bring that truth. Not just so that you can feel better about yourself or that person can feel worse about themselves, but so that person will come back to the Lord. That's our purpose of existence, is to bring people to God. If they're his son or daughter, nothing will change that, but that relationship can become cloudy and scratched up. It's your responsibility to step in, bring them back. So we equip ourselves to be Nathan, right? We, we go before the Lord, right? Like I said earlier, the most important conversation he ever had was with God, not even with David. It was with the Lord. We need to be in conversation with our God, especially if we feel like we see sin in someone else's life. We go before the Lord. We say, God, what, what do you want? Like, what's your time in this? Lord, what would I say in that moment? Lord, what is the truth that needs to be revealed? We equip ourselves to be Nathan, but... At the same time, we need to expect ourselves to be David. That's the harsh reality of our existence. That as we equip ourselves to be Nathan, we really expect ourselves to be David. Because the truth is, is that we will be falling into sin. We will be falling into error. And someone else needs to call us out. So set those people up for success. If that person is trying to bring, find the right time, right, to tell you the the right words about the, the whole truth, right, then you need to make the time. I have an accountability partner. We meet for breakfast on Fridays. We get bagels like men on Fridays. Every Friday, we meet up. I make the time. I carve out a moment in my schedule. You need to find time this summer to have someone that you're connecting with. Not just to sit and chat and eat a bagel. We sit down and I pave the way for him to speak into my life. I make the time, but I pave the way. I've given him tough questions to ask me. Because I know my heart. I know my sin. And so I tell my partner, ask me about this, ask me about this, ask me about this. Every week, without fail. And when he does, it's hard because I don't always get the answer. Great! I paved the way for this person to speak into my life. And maybe most crucial is I tell the truth. If we want that person to find the time to tell us in the right way and bring that truth, we've got to tell them the truth. You sit in that moment that you've carved out, You pave the way with questions or or topics or whatever, reading through a book, whatever you do. And then you tell them the truth. You're honest. You have to find someone that you can turn all the lights on. You're building into your life a system to protect yourself against those nosedives, against those crashes. You're walking into that football game telling your friends, hey, I don't drink a lot of water or Gatorade or liquid, right? 
You walk into that game, you tell them, I need you to watch me. If I start to sway, if I say the yells incorrectly, make me drink water. You're building into your life a system. I'm going to have this time with this guy. I'm going to have this time with this girl, these two guys, these three girls, or whatever. I'm going to have this time where we're going to pave the way and have intentional conversation. And as we have that conversation, I'm going to tell the truth. And only then will we be able to push each other towards the Lord. Not just make ourselves feel bad or make ourselves feel better, but be like, oh, me too. Oh, you know. It's a moment where we push ourselves to the Lord, push each other to God, because we realize that as believers in Christ, as people who have claimed to place our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are products of restoration. We're the children of a God who redeems. So we want to spread that redemption as far and as wide as we possibly can. I find my closest friends, I say, Let's redeem this. Let's turn this around. Let's repent. Because as a Christian, I care enough about you to have this conversation. So as we sing a few more songs, as we enter into a little bit more worship, I would encourage you to just think about what conversations need to happen. Is it between you and the Lord at this point? Or maybe has God already given you the time and given you the words? Does that conversation need to happen with your brother or your sister? Not for the purpose of beating them down or showing them that you're right, but for the purpose of pushing them to the Lord. Ask yourself, where does this need to happen? How can I better equip myself to be Nathan? How can I better equip the Nathans that need to be speaking to me? Because it turns out one of these days I'm going to be David. So let's pray. Lord, we recognize that you alone can save, that, God, you alone are worthy of our worship, that, God, we in and of ourselves can't turn our lives around, but, God, we thank you that that's not what you ask of us, that, Lord, you don't ask us for perfection, but that instead, Lord, you just ask us to admit our need, as we sang earlier, that, God, all you want from us is our willingness to repent, our willingness to to grab others and pull each other into repentance. If you would, take a moment right now, ask the Lord to show you what kind of system can you put in place this summer? As you're going home or as you're staying here, as you're going on an internship, ask the Lord to show you what kind of structure can you build into your life? Who are the people? What's the time? What are the questions you need to be asking one another? Ask them that right now. If you would, take a moment right now and just ask that the Lord would maybe put someone on your heart, put a face in your mind, someone that maybe you need to confront, or maybe someone that you just need to confess to. Ask the Lord to start a conversation this week, man, before you go back into summer, ask the Lord to have something occur this week that would bring both of you closer to him.